Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Assistant Professor of Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. Joining us today is Dr. Jeffrey Kashuk, Professor of Surgery at Central Michigan University and Director of Trauma, Surgical Critical Care, and Acute Care Surgery at St. Mary's Hospital. Dr. Kashuk is one of the leading investigators in the role of thromboelastography, also known as TEG, for the diagnosis of both hypo and hypercoagulable states in the injured patient. He is also the senior author of the article, Coagulation Abnormalities in the Trauma Patient, The Role of Point-of-Care Thromboelastography, which appeared in the Seminars of Thrombosis and Hemostasis, Issue 36, pages 723 to 737, 2010. This is an excellent article, and I would encourage those who are not familiar with TAG to read it. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Kashuk. Thank you. I thought we would start by asking you to put the problem of coagulopathy, both hypo and hyper, in perspective. Why do trauma patients present with both disorders, and what's the time frame for conversion from one to the other? Great question, Babak. You know, uh, most of us um, in terms of thinking about coagulation disorders in the injured patient, of course, worry about um, the uh, bleeding uh, patient. And in that setting, we're always worried about the loss of clotting factors. But as we all know, the groups from um, uh, Miami uh, and Atlanta, as well as uh, the Denver group, have shown that upwards of uh, 20 to 30 percent of patients, when they present after injury, may uh, show evidence of um, coagulation abnormalities in the absence of loss of clotting factors. So clearly the problem is much more complex. Um, now in terms of really understanding the, uh, the uh, changes that occur in the, uh, in the injured patient, I think as a rule we can assume that a patient who comes in who has the standard signs of shock is um, going to be a priori hypocoagulable. Um, these are patients who are bleeding and who need um, early um, replacement of coagulation factors as part of their resuscitation um, strategy. On the other hand, um, if we survey the literature, we realize that TEG has been around for quite a while. It's not really a new phenomenon. And one of the earlier uh, papers um, that came out of, I believe, the Oregon group um, showed that um, there is a subset of patients um, who present after injury uh, that are hypercoagulable. Um, that manuscript um, actually presented at AAST over 20 years ago um, suggests, uh, if one goes back and looks at those subset of patients, uh, the unique features were that most of those patients were blunt trauma patients who did not receive uh, significant transfusions. So it appears that those patients probably uh, had a hypercoagulable uh, state at initial presentation. So uh, in sum, I think we can say that a sh patient who is in shock uh, will present with a hypocoagulable state. Sometime along the uh, uh, frame the, the management of those patients either through the operating room or in the ICU at some time frame those patients will become hypercoagulable and switch over to what we call the smoking gun. 
the risk factors that are all the thrombotic risk factors associated with the hypercoagulable state. And I think that the actual detailed time frame by which that happens really remains to be clearly elucidated. So that's perfect. And uh, you already alluded to the fact that TEG is a fairly old modality, but for a variety of reasons, it, it really didn't take off. And I thought we would just start our conversation off by asking you to review what is TEG, what does it measure, how do you do it, et cetera. So um, TEG is, um, is a viscoelastic measurement of uh, blood clot formation. It was actually originally described in 1948 by a German name, named Hartert and um, uh, was um, used briefly uh, after that time in the uh, 60s and 70s, but really it took the advent of computer technology to bring the technique up to speed. Um, and um, Ailey Cohen and colleagues um, uh, developed the modern era, if you will, of TEG or thromboelastography. A lot of people say thromboelastography, and uh, the TEG people take that personally. They want the O left out. I've made that error uh, early. So thromboelastography uh, and ROTEM, which is the European version, uh, are variations on a theme. A TEG involves a small cup into which 0.3 cc's of whole blood is administered, and the cup rotates 45 degrees three times per minute around a pin. Due to that rotational uh, action, um, a clot forms by the addition of a certain agent which promotes clot formation. Uh, and the most common one that is administered is kaolin, which is basically sort of like automaceous earth. It's a, a compound around which a clotinitis can form. Um, the rapid thromboelastography technology adds tissue factor to kaolin to speed up the clot formation even more rapidly. And as that cup rotates and the clot begins to form, the pin picks up the changes in the clot and transmits that to a transducer through which a graphic representation of the clot can be formed. Now the difference between TAG and ROTEM is that in ROTEM, instead of the um, cup rotating around the pin, it's the pin that's rotating within the cup. Now uh, the pure physicists will say that that's an inexact way to measure it because anything that is moving itself and at the same time measuring the phenomenon may not be as um, accurate, if you will. Uh, but again, that's a point of argument between which technique. But the end result is a graphic representation, if you will, a viscoelastic representation of clot formation, which extends from the initial uh, um, formation of the clot via thrombin generation to the cross-linking of, of uh, fibrinogen uh, to uh, platelet activation and stabilization of the clot, eventuating in um, the lytic portion or thrombolysis. And uh, just as a brief follow-up, are there any studies comparing TEG to Rotom? Uh, there are a, some brief uh, reports 
uh, comparing the two. I would refer the listeners to those studies by Nielsen et al. He's an anesthesiologist. He did most of those studies at the uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham. I think he's currently in Philadelphia uh, at uh, Drexel. And uh, Vance has done some early work. But most of the uh, reasons that there haven't been head-to-head studies is that the Rotem device, until very recently, was not FDA approved in the United States. Um, but now that it is, I think that uh, we will see some comparative uh, studies. Okay. And so irrespective of whether a particular hospital brings TEG on board or brings Rotem on board as a new technology, what's the learning curve to the test? Can I just pick a few normal lab values like I do a CBC or something and just go with it? I don't think so. Um, I think that, um, that in actuality the learning curve is definitely an important consideration. Um, and um, we found when we implemented uh, TEG technology uh, in Denver uh, that it required multiple uh, lectures and reviews uh, with the surgical staff, with the anesthesiology staff, and with the laboratory personnel to understand what the various points that we were measuring were. In addition, I think it's really important to have an appreciation of the actual graphic um, um, points of the TAG curve because some of the changes that one sees are so dramatic that irrespective of the values, recognition of the actual tracings can prompt uh, the reaction in terms of how one uh, approaches the, uh, the problem. The group in Copenhagen have developed some online uh, training uh, mechanisms for TAG. Uh, we've developed some like that too, um, but I think that, that these are all very useful and, it, and, it's, and it's not any harder than learning to do an EKG when you're a medical student or learning to do FAST. It's the type of thing where once you do it, once you take a course, once you recognize the patterns and you are doing the test repeatedly, anybody can gain um, uh, experience with it. Now, unfortunately, our listeners don't have access to a graph since we don't have a video component right. to this. But at least um, uh, descriptively, can you describe some of the values and sure. what they mean? Sure. So, so on a standard Kalen tag, um, the, the initial portion of the tag, which is a straight line, is referred to as the R value. Now, the R value is replaced in the rapid tag by the tag ACT. The simple explanation is that when you add tissue factor, to the reagent, and the clotting takes place so quickly, the accuracy, the accuracy of the R is lost, which is the initial um, form, beginning formation of the clot. It's the latency period the between... Latency, exactly. Yeah. So therefore, in a rapid tag, it's the tag ACT. In a standard KLN tag, it's the R value. Now, the next point that's of importance is referred to as the split point. And the split point occurs about uh, 0.3 millimeters um, beyond the location where the straight line begins to um, um, spread. And that reflects the very beginning formation of um, polymerization of the uh, fibrin strands via fibrinogen activation. 
As that split point begins to mature and the line diverges into two points, um, the, the kinetics of, of that clot beginning to form is referred to as the K value. And the inverse of that kinetics, or the angle that is formed from the split point along the distance from the split point to a line straight across at 180 degrees is referred to as the alpha angle. Um, and the alpha angle, therefore, is commonly, although it's not really an accurate comparison, but it's commonly used to assess the degree of fibrinogen present in the assay since um, a, a low fibrinogen level will reflect a, um, a narrowing of that alpha angle um, and, um, and, a, and a more hypercoagulable scenario will, ex will reflect a widening of that alpha angle. Backing up, we said that the R or the TEG-ACT, which is the initial uh, portion of the graph, reflects the enzymatic portion. That's your clotting factors, your factor five, your factor eight, your factor seven, uh, all under the influence of thrombin uh, generation to uh, the initial aspects of forming your clot. And of course, that initial segment is going to be significantly prolonged in the presence of a hypocoagulable state in the injured patient. It's going to be delayed until that clot um, is formed. Um, uh, and that will be recognized either in a Kalin specimen or in a TEG via a prolonged TEG ACT. After the split point and the alpha angle, the, um, the, the splitting of the two lines begins to reach a level or amplitude of the tracing measured in millimeters. And as those lines begin to stabilize out in their separation, the distance between the two lines is referred to as the amplitude, and the maximum point at which those two lines reach their distance is called the maximum amplitude. Now, of course, the, the listener recognizes that the cell-based model of coagulation, which is really the modern concept of hemostasis described by Monroe and Hoffman in, I believe, in the mid to late 1990s, really describes accurately the phases of clot formation and, and breaks down clot formation into initiation, um, the, the initial aspects of the clot, which will be reflected by the R or the TEG ACT, and then the um, activation of the clot, which will be reflected by the fibrinogen cross-linking, and then the stabilization of the clot, which of course occurs, the vast majority of the stabilization of the clot occurs via the action of thrombin on the platelet surface. So you have the initial thrombin burst, which we know occurs at the level of the endothelium, due to the actions of factor seven, von Willebrand factor, and um, um, the initial burst of thrombin is liberated from the endothelium, and that small burst of thrombin 
of course, acts on the 2B3A receptors of the platelet, which results in the big thrombin burst. And that big burst of thrombin by the platelet is what really stabilizes the majority of the clot. And certainly we know that 80 to 90% of the stability of the clot is based upon the platelet. Therefore, uh, we see that most of the work that is being done currently in TEG research is zeroing in on this value of the MA, the maximum amplitude, because the MA is primarily reflective of the effect of the platelet, the platelet function for stabilization of the clot. And then finally, as the clot is stabilized, the final portion is balanced by the normal lytic system and the clot is broken down. And the tag follows the clot out and that part of the tracing is referred to as the LY30, which is the degree of lysis that takes place at 30 minutes or as the um, percentage lysis it, it is variably re referred to as that. Now, one other aspect of the TEG, which I think is underemphasized and deserves some comment, is the G value, which has generated some controversy even in our current meeting of the AAST. Why is the G value so important? Well, if we go back to the cell-based model of coagulation, what did we say? We said that the clot is mostly platelet-based, but it's also thrombin-based. So we want to have something that measures the combined roles of thrombin and the platelet, and that's what the G-value is. How is the G-value measured? It is a computer, uh, mathematically generated value based upon the amplitude, and, it's, and the formula is 5,000 times the amplitude or maximum amplitude divided by 100 minus the amplitude divided by 1,000. And the tag gives the G value as a measure of force. It is the same G's that we refer to in physics or astronauts refer to as a measure of force. And it is measured in dynes per centimeter square. And it makes sense. As trauma surgeons, if we begin to think about not coagulation that occurs in a test tube, but is the patient right before us able to form a clot? That's what we care about. So why not focus in on clot strength? And that's what the G provides us. And it gives us a balance of clot strength based upon the combined effects of thrombin and the platelet. And so, perhaps to reiterate the obvious, but how is the TEG overall superior in really determining outcome, need for transfusion, uh, cessation of bleeding, propensity to bleed, relative to PT, PTT, INR? Well, um, remember that the PT and PTT and the INR are, um, are plasma-based tests. They're not whole blood tests. Okay, the PT and PTT reflect the old concepts of coagulation being the extrinsic and intrinsic 
pathways. And those pathways only combine way further down along the pathway when the platelet gets involved. How is it that if 80 to 90 percent of clot formation is based on the platelet, we're using a plasma-based test that totally excludes the, pla the platelet in order to decide whether our trauma patients are forming an adequate clot. So when you think about it physiologically, it makes no sense to base our tests on, on uh, base our decision making on tests that were really designed not for the patient with trauma-induced coagulopathy, but based, but these are tests that were designed to measure the effects of anticoagulants in, in, in an elective setting. So therefore, if we really want to get a handle on clot strength, we need to look at the combined extrinsic, intrinsic pathway, and thrombin generation and platelet effects. And the TEG is the only test that is capable of doing that. The other, the other thing that I would add is that um, the time frame uh, t in order to accomplish those tests is prolonged, besides the fact that their accuracy has been questioned. So we really need a test as trauma surgeons that is real time in the operating room reflecting the current state of the patient, not what the patient was an hour ago before you transfused five or six units of blood. Because how long does it take? Or FFP. So the initial, if you're doing a rapid TEG, um, um, the Houston group has recently shown that you can get the results within 10 to 15 minutes of the initial aspects of the tracing. Now, the, one of the problems with the lytic component, which we can focus on a little later, is that it takes longer to get that aspect. But we can get some hints about the patient that is potentially lytic based upon the earlier components of the tracing. But I think all the listeners would agree that 10 to 15 to 20 minutes for a real-time test is clearly a major improvement over 40, 45 minutes or longer, depending upon what your blood bank uh, laboratory does wherever your hospital is. And the ability, based on your description of the graphs, to customize the blood products being given. If you have a shallow alpha angle, more apt to give cryoprecipitate. If you have a long R value, more apt to give FFP. Correct. MA, more apt to give platelets. Exactly. Before we leave uh, this topic a little bit and move on to the fibrinolytic aspect, just real fast on the ROTEM, are the graphs about the same in terms of R, alpha, MA? They are similar, but I don't, I, I have to, I don't have a lot of personal experience with ROTEM. The only thing that I know about ROTEM is that they have different specific assays that they use in order to identify each of the deficiencies. So in a sense, the TEG is more relational. In other words, the TEG, you can look at the alpha, you can look at the MA, you can look at the TEG ACT, you can look at the lytic component and see the relationships in terms of each aspect of the tracing. Rotem, on the other hand, 
divides the tests up into different assays looking at specific functions of the test, the FibTem, the XTem, et cetera, et cetera. And those are specific assays that are designed to identify fibrinogen deficiency, um, um, initial enzymatic deficiency, et cetera. One acknowledged um, um, weakness of the Rotem test that the manufacturer will clearly speak about is that Rotem cannot characterize platelet function uh, as well as the uh, TAG can. Okay. Let's move on to the uh, fibrinolytic side, if you will. So I've heard many people discuss one-to-one -one FFP to RBC massive transfusion strategies, and some people liken it to attacking a fire from the front door when the problem really is fibrinolysis, or the back door, if you will. So said differently, we support the consumptive coagulopathy with factor repletion until hemostasis is achieved or the patient, frankly, bleeds to death. What is the role of anti-fibrinolytic therapy in, ex in exsanguinating trauma, and can we use TEG to define when and how much to give? That's a great question, and, um, and uh, I see you've done your homework. I think that the uh, recent um, crash, two, CRASH 2 reports, the most recent follow-up report, I think in March or April of this year, um, has opened up the eyes of the trauma world to what may be a uh, overlooked phenomenon, which is fibrinolysis in the trauma patient. And I'll just kind of briefly summarize for those who didn't read the CRASH 2 trial. What it basically suggested is that patients with traumatic brain injury who receive transexamic acid in antifibrinolytic within three hours of arrival, seemingly had a mortality benefit. Those who received the drug following three hours actually had a mortality detriment. Right. So um, that's in follow-up to the original CRASH-2 studies, which suggested that prophylactic use of antifibrinolytics resulted in a survival benefit. But when they teased it out based upon the time frame, um, it seems like there is a critical time frame within three hours based upon that data. Um, interestingly, some of our work from Denver corroborated some of that. We um, identified um, primary fibrinolysis um, in upwards of 30% of patients who were undergoing massive transfusion defined by uh, in excess of 10 units of blood within six-hour time frame. So what does that mean to the trauma world? Well, what it means to me is that if a patient is clearly fibrinolytic, um, if we give um, um, fibrinogen in the form of FFP or cryo, um, if the, sh if the um, dynamics have shifted and the lytic system is turned on, I don't believe that you can resuscitate a patient based upon just providing more uh, fibrinogen substrate. Or if you, you do, it's going to need massive amounts. Um, I don't know if it's possible to reverse it. I don't know. And I think that this uh, is a great area for research because what we know is that those patients that are going on to becoming lytic have significant deficits in their fibrinogen. And it appears that those, that is the subgroup who will benefit from antifibrinolytic therapy. 
Furthermore, we identified in our report, which was published in Annals of Surgery, I believe um, uh, last year, that um, we were able to identify fibrinolysis, primary fibrinolysis defined by TAG as an EPL or estimated percent lysis in excess of 15 percent. We, we identified primary fibrinolysis as occurring in um, approximately um, um, 30 percent of patients who are undergoing massive transfusion. So that means that there is a huge subset of patients that are within that group that are not going to be benefited by one-to-one -one therapy or if you believe the answer is one-to-two or one-to-three or whatever it is and those patients need early antifibrinolytics. And so to answer your question, I think that um, the only way to make a diagnosis of fibrinolysis in the operating room is with thrombolastography. Um, that is, again, in the operating room. Yes, you can send out a specimen for fibrin split products, or you can ask the lab to do a euglobulin lysis time, but you might get the result tomorrow. Okay, the only way you can make the diagnosis immediately is um, with the TEG. Now, one of the problems with the TEG about making that diagnosis is the lysis, as we said, happens at the end of the TEG tracing. So one of the signs of a patient who is going to go lytic is that if they are in shock, if they are receiving a massive transfusion, and if they already have a very prolonged TEG ACT, if their MA is narrow, they are appearing diffusely hypocoagulable on your first 10 to 15 to 20 minutes of your TEG tracing. I would surmise that that is a patient that you might not wait to see the lytic component on your tracing and you go ahead and preemptively treat them. Because I think that patient's risk of lysis is significant and their mortality risk is high. Um, the, germ, the, um, the Austrians have shown and we showed that the mortality in that subgroup is anywhere from 50 to 90 percent. So therefore it justifies early preemptive antifibrinolytics and we give, um, we give five grams of Amacar in 250 cc's of D5W as an IV push, and then we start a drip of another five grams over um, a half hour to 40 minutes. Um, and, um, and then, and we continue in our tag tracings. And on the front side of that curve, if you will, while your Amacar is dripping, you're still giving them FFP or whatever other blood products you need. Absolutely, we utilize our algorithm based upon the various tag tracings and, um, and our anesthesiologists have become so in tune to that that they will um, order their products and double up on their products based upon what the TEG is showing. Now, it's really important for surgeons, anesthesiologists resuscitating these patients to remember that FFP has a lot of fibrinogen in it. A unit of it, uh, five units, five units of FFP has about this. Four to five units has about the same amount of fibrinogen as a ten pack of cryo. 
So you don't necessarily have to reach for the cryo if you're already giving the FFP. And platelets also have fibrinogen in them. So if you have to give platelets guided by your TAG, we have to keep that in mind also. You know, it's interesting. Um, aside from the trauma application of this, uh, just about a week or so ago, we had a patient on the obstetrical service come into the surgical intensive care unit. She had sustained an intrauterine fetal demise that had ultimately triggered DIC, requiring uterine artery embolization, and you can imagine the blood loss. And uh, the resident turned to me and said, you know, how do you know this patient actually doesn't need Amicar? And I said to the resident, you know, that's a very insightful comment to make. Unfortunately, we currently don't have TAG available clinically, uh, but that seemed to be the only way to make that determination. Should I be continuing my FFP, giving Amicar, or both? Well, that's the whole issue. That opens up another interesting question because I think that um, as surgeons, we need to be aware that DIC is sort of a toilet term. And it's been thrown around very, very frequently. And it's really important to differentiate between DIC and the um, acute coagulopathy of trauma. DIC is commonly described as um, diffuse intravascular coagulopathy secondary to malignancy, retained placenta, as you've described. Those are the classic scenarios where it's seen. But there's a really key difference, in my mind, between trauma-induced coagulopathy and DIC. And that is that the, DI, the, the consumptive coagulopathy, which results from DIC, is initiated by stage one DIC, which is classically described as a hypercoagulable state, okay? The retained placenta, the malignancy, results in a hypercoagulable state. As a result of the increasing hypercoagulable state, the lytic system gets turned on and, and in, in an attempt to lyse the clots that are forming all over. And that upregulation of the lytic system, which continues and is unopposed, is what leads to stage two DIC or consumptive coagulopathy, which eats up the, the, the various uh, clotting factors. Now, physiologically, there's a huge difference between the two because trauma-induced coagulopathy, which generates a hypocoagulable state, is generated by large amounts of TPA release due to endothelial injury. On the other hand, the hypercoagulable state generated by malignancy or other factors is the opposite end of the spectrum. It's initiated by PI, plasminogen activation inhibitor, which is, runs a balance with TPA. And if PI is in excess and you generate that hypercoagulable state, okay, those patients, in those patients, um, uh, antifibrinolytics are contraindicated. And in fact, we had a patient in Denver a couple of years ago who went back to the OR on four occasions for recurrent bleeding from a splenectomy after um, a malignancy. It, the patient had a splenectomy due to, I think, CML, okay? And we couldn't figure out why the patient was continuing to bleed. We got the TEG and we identified the hypercoagulable state. 
And although it's counterintuitive, you have a bleeding patient that is hypercoagulable, we treated that patient with heparin to bring down the hypercoagulate to normal, and the patient stopped bleeding. Now, this is something, I mean, I learned as a medical student, uh, but up until now, it really was just textbook knowledge with no clinical ability to measure when to do this seemingly crazy intervention. Right. Um, let's switch gears entirely. We've been talking so far about hypocoagulable states. Let's use this as a, as a platform to launch into hypercoagulable states associated with trauma. Um, we all know that there's a high failure rate associated with appropriately administered prophylactic heparinoids, low molecular weight or um, unfractionated. Let's talk about the use of TEG and the role of the platelet to measure hypercoagulability and dosing of these prophylactic agents. Um, I think that um, the first thing to remember about the hypercoagulable state is that currently, to the exclusion of TEG, every single test that we do in order to work up a patient for a thrombotic condition makes the diagnosis after the clot has already occurred, be it D-dimer, uh, duplex studies, venography, all the way to taking a clot out in the operating room. Currently, there is no test available in order to evaluate a patient's risk for developing a clot. Narrow PT, narrow INR, nothing has proven to be of any usefulness at all. Furthermore, that's what further compounds the problem is that we are administering low molecular weight heparin in standard doses with a poorly utilized method for monitoring uh, the levels of which we do, which is basically anti-10A, which very few places do and accept. Uh, I think most trauma surgeons do not order it. So um, we think that TEG may have an important role and one of the assays that is available via TEG is a anti-heparin assay in order to take out heparin from the test in order to see to what degree is heparin reducing the, um, the MA, uh, which is increased in a hypercoagulable state or the G value, which we spoke about. Um, and so, um, there are ongoing studies in order to evaluate how well TEG can do that. Ongoing uh, clinical trials. Ongoing clinical trials. I know that the Denver group, uh, after I left there, uh, initiated a study utilizing TEG in an algorithm based upon administration of heparinoids. Um, as we said, um, the other great aspect of TEG is that we can begin to look at the role of the platelet versus thrombin in terms of the hypercoagulable state as well. And you know, uh, Bobak, it's no accident that in the 80s and 90s, there were some trials that advocate the use of aspirin for uh, prophylaxis against thrombosis, even on the venous side. Um, as well as the arterial side. It had a significant failure rate, 
Um, but nobody really understood who are those patients that are at risk for a hypercoagulable state based upon the platelet or based upon um, thrombin. And what percentage of patients that fail standard heparinoids are failing because their heparinoids are inadequately dosed for whatever reason based upon congenital factors, based upon weight-based aspects, um, et cetera, okay? And it's not as complicated as we think because if we go back to Verkau's triad, which was described over 150 years ago, he said that hypercoagulability, stasis, and endothelial injury are the factors that lead to um, thrombosis. So we can measure endothelial injury in a trauma patient, be it as a surrogate using ISS, using injury patterns, okay? How do we measure um, um, stasis? Well, we measure stasis by injury patterns, such as patients who have bilateral long bone fractures, patients who have head injury, patients who have spinal cord injury. It's no accident that those are the patients that have the highest risk of venous thrombosis historically because they have stasis. They, are, they have prolonged ICU length of stays. They have prolonged hospital length of stays. And we know that those are the patients that are at risk for developing progressive hypercoagulable states during their hospitalization. Now we need to start investigating those patients and saying what's happening to their coagulation system and at what point does their hypercoagulable state place them at risk for developing a clot. So the hypothesis then in, in multiple studies now, we're not talking about any one particular trial, is that TEG can be used to measure a patient's hypercoagulable state just for showing up the, the G value, maybe of use in determining hypercoagulability, and then subsequent dosing with a heparinoid of your choice, you can follow serial tags to assess the impact of that particular drug at that particular dose in that particular patient. And then <clears throat> I guess the ultimate plan then, hope would be that in the trials to come, the years to come, we can actually describe some sort of a dose response and say, listen, for this particular injury pattern, you're in a high-risk category. Here's your G-value. You need to normalize that G-value to G minus something else, mm -hmm. much as we do with heparin IV uh, following uh, P. Absolutely. And I would take, take it even a step further. I would refer the readers to our publication in Journal of Surgical Research. Um, um, our fellow uh, Gonzalez was the lead author, in which we described um, an early portion of the tag, which is the delta value. And the delta is um, the distance between the R value and the split point, which is a very narrow portion where the, where the tracing just begins to split. And it turns out that within the tag software is the, um, we can actually detail that portion of the curve and generate thrombin generation um, um, points. We can measure the total thrombin generation. We can measure the maximum rate of thrombin generation, um, both in terms of kinetics and total and actual amount of thrombin. So that can give us a sense of what the enzymatic contribution. Patients that are hypercoagulable are putting out a lot more thrombin, 
okay? The G value can give us a reflection of the contribution of the platelet and thrombin. So if the G value is increased, then the next question is, is the delta increased? If the delta is normal and the G value is increased, then we know that the significant contribution to the hypercoagulable state is the platelet. Which gets us back to possibly aspirin therapy. Which gets us back to aspirin or Plavix or whatever. And again, of course, that's a very careful decision-making uh, process in the trauma patient. On the other hand, if um, the G value is elevated and the delta is increased, suggesting a great um, uh, upswing in thrombin generation, then the amount of heparin that you're giving that patient might not be adequate. And you need to correct that delta and bring that into a normal range before you were to add, let's say, aspirin therapy. The whole theme here, which is really, really the beauty of TAG, what excites me so much about it, is we've got to start thinking about relational coagulation. It's all a dynamic process. It's a cell-based model of coagulopathy, of coagulation, and, and if we think about it in those terms, I think the ultimate um, uh, benefit is going to be to our patient. Well, this has been an uh, unbelievably interesting discussion regarding an old technology that's making a nice come around uh, and allow allowing us to measure really what's happening, as you just alluded to, at the whole blood level rather than component uh, measurements of plasma versus cellular-based. We've been speaking today with Dr. Jeffrey Kashup regarding the role of thromboelastography in measuring and directing treatment for coagulopathic disorders in the injured patient. I would like to again thank Dr. Kashup for taking the time to share his views with us and compliment him on his ongoing work in this field. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Bobak Sarani.